This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And it's a great pleasure to be with you for our 81st consecutive program dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, My guest today is going to be Dr. Asha Qureshi. He was on several weeks ago, and actually we we wanted to bring him back uh, to continue our discussion on sleep disorders. We brought him on originally to talk about daylight saving time and how that impacts our sleep. Uh, But we really wanted to touch on the topic of obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, He was scheduled to be our guest last week, uh, but unfortunately, uh, I had to cancel the program and we had to go with a best of. And uh, I'd like to take this time to recap for you uh, exactly why I canceled the program Uh, on April 7th. Uh, Thursday, um, I started developing a sore throat. Uh, While I was at home, I I actually tested with a home antigen test, and that test was negative. Um, The following day, I I felt fine and went to work to see patients. Uh, As I was seeing patients, I started to feel ill and came home uh, and developed, which was clearly a fever, and retested and was COVID positive. Uh, That was the beginning of what has been now a 10-day ordeal of dealing with a very, very serious problem with COVID-19. COVID-19 is not something to be taken lightly. You know, we all hear about, well, it's just like having the flu. Uh, You know, you don't get any symptoms, maybe a little scratchy throat. Uh, well, for some of us, that's not the case. And I I think as many of the listeners know, and certainly all my friends know who have heard about this, um, everyone is quite surprised because of the caution I take and my family takes from the standpoint of mask use, um, avoiding large crowds such as being in a church or being on an airplane or in a restaurant. So it was shocking uh, for many people to hear that I had contracted the virus. Not only have I gotten both vaccinations, but I have gotten both booster shots. Uh, What subsequently happened is I had a persistent fever for three days. I had the good fortune of being able to contact my physician who was able to order Paxlovid. Now, Paxlovid is something we've talked about on the program before. This is an antiviral medication, much like you take Tamiflu for the flu, but you have to take it quickly. And I was able to find out that there are a lot of places now where you can do the test-to-treat program. Uh, Physician 1, there's a CVS in Avon. 
Uh, so there are places you can go to be tested and be immediately given the antiviral medication. One discussion I had uh, with physicians was to try the monoclonal antibody infusion versus the Paxlovid. Um, it was felt to go with Paxlovid because it had a broader scope in its antiviral abilities and its ability to disable the virus before it does too much damage. Um, I developed an upper respiratory infection and fever uh, that persisted for three days. And uh, as predicted, the Paxlovid shortened that course. Uh, typically, a five-day course became three days of among the most uncomfortable symptoms I'd ever had and uh, have not been back to work. Uh, last week, I had such bad laryngitis on Saturday, I couldn't speak, um, thus the reason for canceling the program. I've also been in quarantine. Uh, now, the quarantine recommendations uh, by all the institutions I work at are five days of total isolation, and then you can come back to work if you wear an N95 mask. Uh, it's ironic that I wear an N95 mask all the time, um, but I certainly was not in any physical condition to come back after five days. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back this week. I think that this speaks to the fact that this virus can affect anyone. And specifically, it talks to the fact that we try to do our best with respect to protection, but this virus has evolved. It has mutated to this BA2 variant that is extremely virulent and does not take much to infect someone. And it does attack your lungs. I'm a non-smoker. I'm in excellent health. I don't, I'm not on any medications. I uh, just had a complete physical from my physician. And nevertheless, was totally disabled by this virus. So I can't even imagine going into this struggle and having other health care problems, health needs, especially respiratory ones or um, being a smoker. So I think that it really demands that we look at every situation differently. Am I glad I got the vaccines? Absolutely. Absolutely. Am I glad I got on the Paxlovid? Absolutely. Because I would hate to think how much worse this could have gotten and how much out of control. I've also had the good fortune of having family around me who uh, can help support me. I mean, in the sense of um, you're totally isolated and trying to function from that standpoint. You also want to protect the loved ones around you. And um, that necessitates everybody making changes from uh, what they normally do, especially uh, with Easter uh, coming up tomorrow and everyone expecting to be at, at my home. Uh, that has certainly changed. The other thing we're trying to do is adapt. Right. So masking. We know that masks work. We know the numbers are coming up. 
I mean, the total death rate now is over 984,000 Americans dead. And our Connecticut positivity rate is 6.26%. Two weeks ago, it was 3.68%. That doesn't include home tests, right? I did a home test. So I wasn't among the positives. So, again, that's a low number, even at 6.26% and going up steadily. Yet, very few institutions have taken the bold move of protecting other citizens by reinstituting masks. The city of Philadelphia did it. Right? They said it's time we put the mask back on until we get out of this elevation. I don't want to call it a surge, but... You know, this elevation in the frequency of the virus. Today, I was told that the University of Connecticut, where I work, has now mandated masks for their undergraduates. They got to get through the semester. And the number of cases on campus keeps going up. And, you know, when you look at some of these numbers, these vaccination rates uh, in the United States, so... 82.1% of people over the age of five have gotten one dose of the vaccine. 70% of the American population has gotten two doses. When you look at over the age of 12 to look at boosters, it drops down to only 47%. Here's what I don't get, folks, is getting one dose of the vaccine or two doses saying, well, I'm not going to get the booster. That's like playing a sport and quitting at halftime. Could you imagine Gino Auriemma just saying, well, we're going we're gonna to stop playing at halftime. We win. We've defeated this virus. We've, defeated, we've won the game. We're just leaving at halftime. Why finish playing the game? When you're part of this, you don't leave at halftime. You need to fight. And I ask you all as a cautionary tale from someone who has gone through and is going through this recovery from COVID to be mindful of others and protect yourself as much as you can. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back to talk about some of the newer innovations at looking at COVID-19 and things we could be doing to help ourselves. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. second segment of our program. Uh, Some of the things we've talked about on this program has been uh, the issue of our life expectancy here in the United States. And the latest statistics show that this, it continues to fall. We are not living longer here in the United States. Now, in 2020, we kind of expected a decline due to the virus. But in 2021, it continued to drop. And this was when compared to other wealthy industrialized nations like ourselves, we fell the most. So we expected there was going to be some rebound after the vaccine, right? So in 2020, if you look at it, 2019, our life expectancy was 78.86 years. In 2020, 
that dropped to 76.99 years. That was the biggest drop since World War II. In 2021, when we expected it to be up, we instead fell even further to 76.6 years. And in the article that was published, and, and when they looked at this, they kind of drilled down on it. And uh, we didn't see that rebound. Now, in 2020, the, the greatest impact on life expectancy was on blacks and Hispanics when they looked at this demographically. And, and the feeling was that there was not enough access to health care in those groups. But in 2021, the greatest decline was among white Americans. And the reason is due to vaccine hesitancy and resistance against restrictions, right? Nobody's going to tell me to wear a mask. So with that, these, these, this drop that we're seeing now is not among a minority population. The minority population, you know, has adapted and gotten the vaccine, apparently, and and moved through this. So we really need to look at these things because it's shocking to hear that this great country of ours, we're losing ground. And it's so important that we kind of get a grip on all of this. We're starting to make headway in terms of, you know, vaccine. Everybody says, well, I hear it all the time. Are we going to be doing these vaccines forever? You know, this virus is going to be with us forever. And the question becomes, how are we going to deal with it? Is it going to be through vaccines? Probably. How often will you need to get it? I don't know, as often as we need to. One idea being put forward and a lot of research is being done here in Connecticut at Yale, is a nasal spray with the possibility that the the next vaccine will be a nasal spray because let's think about it, right? You, the virus comes in typically through the nose, through the nasal passages. So with that, if you could create a nasal spray vaccine that becomes essentially a force field, a barrier to infection, right? You you can now really protect people over a longer period of time. Uh, one thing's for sure, we can't keep doing the same thing over and over again, right? We can't just keep repeating ourselves in the face of a situation that may be getting worse. So it, it's pretty important uh, for us to realize that. And I think the nasal spray is an idea I think we should keep an eye on. One other thing, uh, this week, the FDA authorized a breath test for COVID-19 infection for testing. Um, great idea. I mean, in the sense that if you can get an immediate response. I will say the home testing has also been outstanding. It's been a great tool to have. And it's readily available uh, to everyone. And you can, you know, go to a, a pharmacy, go to a, a place to be tested for PCR. What's not clear is the quarantine issues, right? I mean, it, it's 
pretty well defined for me and others who work in a healthcare setting, but in terms of air travel and things such as this and travel among states, uh, between states, uh, what are the restrictions? Are there any? I will say that I endorse the fact that they have extended the airline masking rules. And the reason I believe that, and I'm sure people say, well, we have the best air filtration. Uh, One thing I know from air travel is not every airplane I'm on is the same in terms of their ability to filter air, but whenever you're in a closed situation, so you may be in the safest place on that plane, but you have to get to that plane, right? And you have to be in an airport. So I, I think that, again, these are things that are going to fluctuate. And I asked the politicians, you know, show some backbone in being able to say, okay, we're going back to mass. It may not, it's not going to be popular, but we're going to have to go back to mass for the next couple of weeks. And I think that's the way we're going to have to deal with this. Uh, last week was the Masters Golf Tournament, and, and everybody was very excited that Tiger Woods uh, waged uh, a comeback after his uh, leg injury and his motor vehicle accident. I'm, I'm not here to join the uh, adoring fans, um, but by the same token, I would like to point out his approach is fairly typical of the approach that I see in athletes when they approach illness. Now, it doesn't have to be a high-level athlete. I mean, this is, these are people who played high school sports. But there's a mentality among athletes when they become ill that they will do anything to get back. They will sacrifice anything, go through any torture they have to go through to try to get back to their sport. What I find in patients is who are long distant from their sport and haven't played. They just want to get back to work, get back to life with their families. And there's this mentality. It's a don't quit mentality. And as a physician, it's great to work with folks like that. Sometimes difficult, but great because of their motivation in terms of just trying to get back and to try and overcome the odds, even when they are insurmountable. It's a palpable spirit that you see. So when you're taking your child to Little League and getting them involved in sports, it's not all about the winning, folks. It's about working as a team. It's about learning how to sacrifice. It's about reaching a goal. And even if they don't get to the NFL and don't get a college scholarship, um, by having them participate in sports at a young age uh, often has a benefit much later in life. With that, we're going to take a short break, and we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Asha Qureshi, uh, and we're going to be talking about obstructive sleep apnea. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome my guest, uh, Dr. Asha Qureshi. Dr. Qureshi 
is a pulmonary specialist. He is fellowship trained in sleep medicine and is at Trinity Health of New England at St. Francis Hospital and others as part of their uh, group. He was last on our show March 26th. We talked about daylight saving time and its impact on all of our sleep cycles and the circadian rhythm. What we didn't get a chance to talk about is something I often get questioned about from listeners, and that's obstructive sleep apnea and sleep apnea in general. So I really wanted to get him uh, back on, and he has been uh, gracious enough to uh, come back on. Asha, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me back. Uh, Let's talk. Let's get right to it. What is sleep apnea, and specifically, what is obstructive sleep apnea? Sleep apnea is a condition where you stop breathing when you're sleeping at night. This usually happens when your tone in the muscle gets too low and you have a collapse that happens in the back of the throat. This level is usually multi-level. It can happen at the level of the pharynx, at the tongue, and below the tongue. The the problem is that once you collapse the airway, you can try to breathe in, but there's an obstruction in the upper airway which doesn't let the air go through. Um, and that causes you to have low oxygen levels. It uh, puts your mind in a panic, and it wakes you up with a lot of adrenaline surge in your body. And these two combinations wake you up, but then you fall back to sleep and have the same cycle again. Obstructive sleep apnea is the most common co- version of the sleep apnea that we can encounter in sleep lab. This is the obstructive part that accounts for like 90 95% of our uh, patients. A smaller percentage have a problem with their control. And that is in the brain, either because of stroke or heart failure or some other problem with sensing where the people just stop breathing at night. The brain doesn't give the signal to breathe. That's a, a whole different entity which requires a, a whole different uh, discussion. But we focus on obstructive sleep apnea for this uh, talk. So when we talk about obstructive sleep apnea, well, we often associate it with several different characteristics, such as uh, obesity. Is uh, that play a big role in this? Yes, weight is strongly associated with sleep apnea. The more you weigh, the higher the chance of having sleep apnea. In fact, studies have shown that if you are at a BMI, which is a body mass ratio of more than 40, your chance of having uh, sleep apnea is about 80%, even if you have no symptoms. Um, weight is not the only cause. Sometimes people can have an uh, abnormally small palate, and you inherit your face from your parents, so there may be some multifactorial genetic uh, um, thing playing in there too, where the throat is very narrow and you tend to collapse it easily when you fall asleep. But by far, sleep apnea is commonly associated in America with weight gain. And we've had people who've got weight loss surgeries or have lost the weight, and sometimes you can see the difference before and after weight gain and weight loss. They develop sleep apnea, sometimes sleep apnea goes away after weight loss. Well, okay, how about snoring? Uh, that's another thing we always hear about, and, and we ask patients, do they snore? And usually uh, your bed partner will uh, be able to uh, note the sleep apnea. Usually that's where it comes from. But um, the snoring part of it, how big a factor is that? I'll put it in one sentence. Everybody who has sleep apnea will snore, but not everybody who snores has sleep apnea. Um, you have to see the kind of way the people snore. If it's a continuous snore, which happens all the time, it's probably not a big deal. But when people have sleep apnea, the snoring has gaps. They'll snore, 
and then there'll be a choking sound and they'll stop breathing and then they'll start snoring again. That's something which may trigger you to think about sleep apnea more than just a regular snore which happens throughout the night. Are, are most people, uh, since we got on the topic, uh, uh, most people find out that they have obstructive sleep apnea because their bed partner complains of it or notices it? Is that how you detect it primarily? I'm glad you asked that question because I have a lot of people who come into my office accompanied by their wife. They seem to have no problems because they're sleeping through the process, through the, through the snoring. But their wife sees them stop breathing at night and or this bed partner, they will tell you that, they have to drag their patients to the hospital, to the doctor to be evaluated. A lot of people will not have uh, a lot of symptoms, especially mild to moderate. They may snore and stop breathing and not realize it. Um, so when if you have obstructive sleep apnea, one of the things I think of is the fact that, um, you know, during the day you're going to have some excessive sleepiness. I mean, because you're not really getting, if you have obstructive sleep apnea, you're really not getting efficient sleep. Am I correct? Yes, you are. When we have people with sleep apnea, when we study them in the sleep lab, we see a lot of arousal, maybe 30, 40 times per hour. That is a very disruptive sleep. So what people will do is they'll try to sleep longer, and that doesn't solve the problem. So we have people sleeping seven, eight hours, nine hours, and then they wake up and they're unrefreshed. That's just because the sleep apnea is causing a lot of arousals at night. It's like running a marathon throughout the night. You are waking up because of the high adrenaline levels. And adrenaline is a, is a um, hormone that comes up when you are either afraid or you're fighting or you're in some, some sort of a competition. Having that high level of stepping uh, up and adrenaline in your body when you're sleeping at night is not conducive to sleep. It just tires you out more. So these people, I would assume, are taking naps throughout the day or uh, finding themselves to be sleep-deprived during the day. Yeah, in fact, we found sleepiness and tiredness during the daytime is the most common presentation when people realize that they uh, have to seek help. They are napping all the time. They're dozing off. We've had people who have had accidents because of this. Sure. Um, this is the reason why uh, the Department of Transportation, the Aviation Authority, when they have triggers for sleep apnea, they want full evaluation for the people who are sleepy or have a certain body mass characteristics. Where we have to evaluate them for sleep apnea. They have to be uh, treated, and you have to show proof that they have treated and have response. Well, let's talk a little bit about the evaluation. Uh, you mentioned uh, being in the sleep lab, uh, but is that the typical way that you evaluate somebody? So somebody comes to the office um, with their uh, spouse and you know, it sounds like they have sleep apnea. Uh, what's the next step? How do you go about evaluating it? So the next step is to do a, a sleep study to find out if they have actually stopping breathing episodes in their sleep. Now, it doesn't have to be done in the sleep lab. It can be done at home, too. There are a lot of different equipments available which we can mail to the patient or they can pick up from the sleep lab or from a doctor's office, take it home, and sleep with it for one night. These things record your oxygen levels, your heart rate, your breathing effort, your flow from your nose, and they're pretty simple to put on and uh, get an answer about sleep apnea in a one night's uh, evaluation. Uh, sleep studies, where we do it in the hospital, we usually reserve for people who are much sicker, uh, like somebody has advanced heart failure, somebody who's got advanced lung disease, or they're on oxygen where you don't want to take the oxygen off it at their home to do the study. Or people who are uh, elderly, they can't put the device on or keep it on. People who've got uh, issues with other sleep problems like insomnia, you want to evaluate their brain waves 
or we have got the behavioral disorders where they're acting out their dreams, that's not a person to be stayed at home. Usually we reserve the sleep apnea evaluation at home only for one question. Is there a sleep apnea or is there no sleep apnea? And if they're safe to be studied at home by themselves. Are there other parts? So once you've identified someone as having sleep apnea, are there other parts um, to the workup looking at the etiology of it? We talked a little bit about, um, you know, the palate uh, and the formation of the palate as well as uh, being uh, morbidly obese. Um, are there other things you do to work it up? Yes, I mean, endocrine problems are associated with sleep apnea too, like hypothyroidism, which can make you have excess um, uh, tissue and uh, water in the, in the, in the upper airway. Uh, things like acromegaly, where you have too much of the growth hormone, which, which causes excessive growth of the tissue. Um, there are um, uh, certain um, medications like narcotics or benzos, which can make you have sleep apnea because they lower the tone in your body. Obviously, weight is another thing we look at. Usually, as a part of the evaluation, we look at their, their throat. Sometimes there are huge tonsils or um, obstructions that you can uh, uh, alleviate by doing surgery. Now, older adults, um, uh, like we have people above um, 16 or 18, we usually will go with uh, mechanical therapies like sleep CPAP machines or devices. But in children, um, the first treatment of choice is usually taking out the adenoids and tonsils if they're enlarged to control sleep apnea. Um, let's go again, since we're on the topic of treatment. Some of the things uh, we hear about and read about, first of all, the bed itself. Um, does the bed you're sleeping in make a difference? For example, we see uh, sleep number beds or beds that incline are becoming more popular. Um, are these things worth the investment uh, in terms of being able to raise the back of the bed uh, to some degree at night? What I usually tell my patients is to find a bed which is comfortable for their sleep. It's, it should be comfortable for their body. The positional therapy that you're referring to um, does not always treat sleep apnea. There's a, there's a small percentage of people who are position responsive. If you study them um, on their sides, they may have less breathing events, or if they elevate, they may have less breathing events, they may have more breathing events on their back. This kind of population will benefit from having the bed raised up. If people have other conditions, like um, lung disease or heart disease, where they want to be elevated, or if they have reflux, the acid comes up their throat if they're lying flat. In those cases, it definitely makes sense to raise the bed up. Um, we do advise position therapy for a small percentage of our patients who cannot tolerate the CPAP and have position dependence, where the elevation of the bed will make a difference. Uh, but by and large, uh, just a comfortable bed, where, which is comfortable for the patient to sleep in, would be fine, fine to get a good quality sleep. And some people like it hard, some people like it warm, some people like it cold. It just depends on the person. Let's talk a little bit about CPAP because we hear about the term all the time. We see it on TV. They're selling ways of cleaning your CPAP, uh, getting a better CPAP. Can you talk a little bit about what is CPAP and how does it work for this condition? So CPAP is an acronym. It means Continuous Positive Airway Pressure Device. It's um, uh, something which was developed in Australia um, decades ago. And somebody came up with the idea that if you hook the vacuum in reverse and blow air with force, it sort of creates the air stand in the back of your throat, which keeps the tissues open when you're breathing at night. 
Uh, there are different ways to apply this pressure to the face. It can be a nose mask, plugs in the nostrils, full face mask, the whole face, the whole face can be covered by a mask. Uh, this is essentially a positive pressure device, which uh, puts in positive pressure in the back of your throat and prevents the collapse when you're sleeping at night. The different kinds of CPAP uh, now available in the past, we just used to have one fixed pressure device, which you can program to a certain level, and you determine that pressure in a sleep lab where you dialed up the pressure to see what level eliminate the obstruction and not cause the patient to wake up too much. Nowadays, because of the technology that is available out there, we have self-titrating machines. These have algorithms in there, which you put on, you can put the mask on, turn on the machine. It'll start at a lower pressure. It'll see how you're breathing. If you're stopping breathing, it'll keep ramping up the pressure until it gets to the number where you are having no breathing events. So sort of like a self-titrating machine is available in the markets too. There are more specialized CPAPs, which you call BiPAPs, which are bi-level support, people who can have difficulty tolerating the CPAP because they can't tolerate the high pressure can benefit from these BiPAP machines where you can get a different pressure to breathe in and a lower pressure to breathe out. It's a little bit more comfortable in terms of breathing on, on the machine at night when you're trying to sleep. Um, how about uh, the use of mouth guards? Um, do they help? Um, uh, the plain mouth guards that people use for bruxism or their uh, teeth alignment are not helpful to even take apnea. No. There are specific devices that are crafted, which are called adjustable and mandibular advancement devices. They are um, fixed and they are adjustable. The ones which are the best are the adjustable mandibular advancement devices, which are usually crafted by a sleep uh, certified dentist. They take molds for your mouth, craft a device for you. It's got a separate, separate upper um, tooth uh, um, device and a lower tooth, tooth uh, attachment, and there's a hinge in between. It can be a plastic hinge, a metal hinge, or elastic hinge, which creates a forward protrusion. So you're trying to put the device in and pull the lower jaw forward. This creates a forward protrusion, which keeps the tongue forward and prevents the collapse from happening. Uh, the maximum protrusion that we look for is about six or seven millimeters. The major disadvantage that we see is that people, when they stay with these devices for long term, like year, you can have issues with your jaw. You, you can have de you can develop TMJ arthritis or, or headaches from this, or alter your bite. If those things happen, then they are not usually uh, acceptable to patients. The way they work is they will bring you down by a level. So if somebody's mild to moderate, it can get you down to a normal to mild range. But if you're really severe, this may not be the only treatment. It may be a sort of a fallback. You can't tolerate the CPAP and you want to do something with like a device. You can try uh, oral appliance, which will make it bring it down to the moderate range. And obviously, we have to follow you up with a study. Uh, once we have paired uh, you with a device, we have the forward protrusion all tolerated, or whatever you can tolerate achieved. We repeat the study again to see if this is actually working for you. And sometimes it doesn't. Um, so it may, it may sense you put in a false sense of security that you are not snoring at night because the device is preventing the vibration, but you may still be collapsing the air in and still be having some degree of sleep apnea. So evaluation is key if you want to go with oral appliances, and follow-up is also important. Asha, in, in the last minute here, I wanted to touch on this one. We're seeing a lot of things advertised on TV for a product called Inspire, and I don't even quite understand it. Could you... Uh, briefly explain to us what that is, and is that an effective tool for sleep apnea? So Inspire is a pacemaker for your tongue. It's a stimulator for the hypoglossal nerve. This is the nerve that supplies the tongue, and it makes you retract and protrude the tongue. So what we do is we have a 
surgeon um, put an incision inside under your uh, your jawline, locate the hypoglossal nerve, attach electrodes to the protruder part of the of the nerve, attach it to a pacemaker which is implanted in the chest. The if the the afferent, which is the sensor goes into the respiratory muscles of the of the chest. So when the when the machine senses or the pacemaker senses that you're breathing in, it triggers the hypoglossal nerve to protrude the tongue forward so it doesn't fall back uh, and cause a collapse in sleep apnea. This is um, um, obviously a surgical, uh, surgically implanted device, so it's a bit more complex than using a sleep app, uh, machine like CPAP. Uh, usually we reserve it for people who are uh, severe and cannot, be tolerated, can, and cannot tolerate the CPAP or people who choose not to use any other treatment and go with something implantable where they can turn on the device when they sleep at night and turn it off um, when they're awake during the daytime. There's a lot of uh, restrictions. Um, the studies that have done have uh, looked at people who are not really obese. So the BMI cutoff for this kind of a device is usually uh, a BMI of 33 to 34. Above that, uh, there's not a lot of data that's going to work. The other thing we have to do is because it's a tongue protruding device, we have to make sure that tongue is the only cause of the sleep apnea in that sure. particular patient. We do that by doing a sleep endoscopy. We put you under propofol anesthesia, we knock you out, and then we pass the scope and see how the collapse is happening. If the collapse is mainly front to back and to posterior, then there's a chance that this device will work for you. If the, uh, the device if the, uh, collapses concentric, which is everything is collapsing, including the velopharynx and the hypopharynx, and it may not be a good option for those people. The other thing is that we're restricting this device only for severe sleep apnea. So if you're above 30 events per hour, then, then you'll be considered for this device. So it's, it's a device which you have used for people who can be controlled on CPAP or who choose not to use a CPAP or non-compliant with it because of intolerance of the mask. Wow. It's a good thing to have in your armamentarium, but it's not the first line that I would sure. use. It's not the, it's not as easy as they say on TV as most cases. Asha, that's it's the whole sure. evaluation it requires the evaluation and it has it requires a dedicated patient too. Because obviously after you put the device in, you have to do a tight question to see how much current to apply. Sure. Uh, program the pacemaker to protrude the tongue. Asha, thank you. Thanks for your time. Yeah. Thanks for your patience, and really thanks for everything you do for our community. I, I think we've all learned something uh, today, including me. Uh, about obstructive sleep apnea. Thank you once again. You're welcome. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back to wrap up today's program. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. Many thanks to our studio producers today. Anthony DiRenzo and Tom Conley-Wilson have been on the board. Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. In closing, I want to let everyone know that one thing I've learned in the last week based on my odyssey and fighting off COVID-19 is the importance of staying in good health. If you quit, if you are diabetic, get those numbers under control. Exercise regularly. Those are the tools you're going to need when it comes to dealing with the COVID-19 virus and other conditions. With that, until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. 
Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.